Good afternoon and welcome to On the Arts, KLW's radio magazine of the performing arts. I'm your host, David Tulip. Today you'll hear about Voices on War, the latest concerts coming up from the Berkeley Community Chorus and Orchestra. I'll talk with conductor Ming Luke. Brett Strader, music director for the Cinnabar Theater's production of The Last Five Years, joins me, along with Jed Sacrin, the director. Philippa Kelly talks on happenings at the Magic Theater in Fort Mason. She'll be in conversation with the Magic's director of communications, Stephanie Holmes. And Peter Robinson offers a Brit's view of the latest episodes from The Crown. All coming up after this update from the BBC. Hello, I'm Moira Alderson with the BBC News. A member of Israel's war cabinet has said the military could take matters into its own hands if the world and the Lebanese government don't do more to stop the militant group Hezbollah from attacks at its northern border. Benny Gantz said times was running out for a diplomatic solution. Shaima Khalil reports from Jerusalem. Benny Gantz has warned that if the world and the Lebanese government don't act to prevent Hezbollah from firing on Israel's northern residents and to distance the group from the border, the Israeli army was going to do it. State media in Lebanon say that an Israeli airstrike has killed a Hezbollah fighter along with his two relatives. The attack reportedly hit a house in Bintishbeel, a town about two kilometers from the border with Israel. A Hezbollah statement said one of the victims was an Australian citizen who was visiting his family. Exchanges of fire between the Israeli army and the Lebanese militant group have escalated since October the 7th. The United States is sending another $250 million in arms and equipment to Ukraine, the last tranche available without a new vote in Congress. From Washington, here's Shingai Nyoka. The military aid package includes air defense equipment, 15 million rounds of ammunition, as well as ammunition for rocket systems and artillery. And with this disbursement, the U.S. has exhausted the funding it had set aside to help Ukraine fight the Russian invasion. The White House urged Congress to urgently pass a new funding request so as to keep Ukraine's war efforts on track and to defend territory it recaptured from Russia. President Biden has asked Congress for another $61 billion for Ukraine, but some Republicans are refusing to approve the assistance without an agreement to tighten security along the U.S.-Mexico border. The United States and Mexico have held high-level talks on migration, a crucial issue in the U.S. presidential election campaign. President Andres Manuel López Obrador met a delegation led by the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Mexico City. Mexico's foreign minister described the meeting as very good but gave few details. A European trial of a new antibody treatment for babies with a common winter respiratory virus indicates that hospital admissions could be slashed if the children get a single injection. Unlike vaccines, which prompt the immune system to create antibodies, Nasevimab bypasses that step, giving instant protection. The trial involving 8,000 babies under 12 months old showed an 83% reduction in hospital admissions for RSV, which can cause serious lung infections. Kate Parker's two daughters took part in the study. Jess got the antibody jab but they both remained healthy and I hoped that in the long term if it was shown to be effective that it would prevent families from their babies being ill and lots of hospitalisations. World news from the BBC. 
Poland's new pro-EU government has put the country's state-owned television, radio and news agency into liquidation, a week after sacking the heads of the organisations. It accuses the previous government of turning them into a mouthpiece for its policies. The culture minister said the move would let them keep operating while restructuring takes place. Thousands of people have demonstrated in Buenos Aires against a decree of radical economic reforms announced by the new Argentine president, Javier Millet. The protesters demanded that the courts intervene to declare the plan unconstitutional. It scraps hundreds of economic regulations, including a price ceiling on rent. It also puts restrictions on the right to strike. Apple says it's thrilled to be able to restart sales of its latest smartwatch models to American customers after a U.S. federal appeals court suspended a ban. The tech giant had lodged an emergency appeal after government trade regulators ruled that Apple had infringed blood oxygen monitoring patents held by the Californian company Massimo. The health firm alleges Apple poached key employees to develop the monitoring know-how in its flagship watches, which were pulled from the U.S. market last week. The Austrian engineer Gaston Glock, who developed one of the world's best-selling handguns, has died. Bethany Bell has this report. Gaston Glock's rise began in the early 1980s when he and a team of experts developed the Glock 17, a lightweight semi-automatic gun made mainly of plastic. The weapon, which was easy to assemble, rapidly sold throughout the world. Gun control advocates criticised Gaston Glock for popularising powerful guns. The reclusive Mr Glock rarely responded. In July 1999, he survived an attempt on his life when an investment broker who managed his assets tried to have him killed by an attacker with a hammer. That's the latest BBC News. Welcome to On the Arts, KLW's weekly radio magazine of the performing arts. Lots to talk about on today's show, but to start with, the Berkeley Community Chorus and Orchestra presents, sadly, a timely concert with the theme Voices on War and presents two works, Sam Wu's The Wind Blows Full of Sand, a premiere in a work that was commissioned by the BCCO, and Michael Tippett's oratorio A Child of Our Time. That work is a secular oratorio by Tippett, who also wrote the libretto. It was composed between 1939 and 41 and was inspired by events that profoundly affected Tippett. The assassination of a German diplomat by a young Jewish refugee in 1938 and the Nazi, Nazi government's subsequent reaction to the assassination, which was in the form of a violent pogrom against Germany's Jewish population, better sadly known as Kristallnacht. Tipp's oratorio deals with these incidents in the context of the experiences of all oppressed people, and it carries a strongly pacifistic message of ultimate understanding and reconciliation, something the world needs a lot of these days. Wow. Written in 41, and as the French say, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Here to tell us more about the concert is a frequent flyer here on the arts, someone I call one of the busiest guys in the biz, the music director of the Berkeley Community or, uh, Chorus and Orchestra, Ming Luke. Ming conducts many of the annual Nutcracker performances at the San Francisco Ballet, as well as for the Nashville Ballet, for which he is music director and principal conductor. He also led the incredible performance of Cirque Nutcracker with acrobatics with the San Francisco Symphony earlier this month. 
Next month, he returns to the San Francisco Ballet to conduct Mere Mortals. That's where artistic director Tamara Rojo launches the 2024 season with an immersive sensory experience. The new work is, has music by Floating Points and choreography from Azure Barton. In February, he conducts A Night of the Movies with Las Cruces Symphonies, and then more with the Sacramento and San Francisco Ballet Seasons offerings. See what I mean? And this is not even close to teasing everything he's up to on the various podiums around the country and abroad. Oh, and he was just named interim music director of the Berkeley Symphony. Welcome, Ming. And gosh, that's all we time have time for. Sorry. <laughs> I, it was great to ta- chat. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I just had was wild by that Cirque Nutcracker and the, on the Davies stage with all of those acrobats. It was pretty something. It must have been an experience for you as well. It was uh, pretty spectacular. I, but we discovered that I'm the only person in the entire room that actually didn't get to see the, uh, the, the show. Uh, all the musicians, of course, were facing out towards the audience so they could see the, the incredible acrobatics uh, and obviously the audience too. But I would know something spectacular was happening because all the musicians would suddenly, in shock, look up from their music and, you know, be distracted. It was just a, it was a very fun show. <laughs> Well, um, have you kept track of how many nutcrackers in toto you have done? I imagine you, I imagine you with this big Santa's belt that you cl- click off notches for every one. I do keep track of San Francisco Ballet because that was my first one. Um, and San Francisco Ballet was the company that started the nutcracker tradition in, in, in the U.S. Um, and I just crossed, I think, 100 with San Francisco um, alone. So, um, and, that's, and I just did, mm-hmm. and I just did uh, 18 in Nashville this year. So it's um, it's definitely up there. It, more this week too, right? With the ballet. Yep, uh, I have a show in just three hours. Actually, in Nutcracker with oh, San Francisco Ballet. Uh, keep up that right arm muscle. <laughs> well, it's such a pleasure to discover Michael Tippett's work that will be featured on the BCCO program next week. A child of our time. Now he divides the work into three large parts. Tell us about them. Yes, uh, the, the, this piece uh, was divided into three parts. It actually corresponded to a newspaper article he was reading about the events that were happening at the time. And they really fall into, um, it's very much a structure like you would find in a Bach Passion uh, or an oratorio. Um, but instead of, of, of chorales that create these little anchor points, he uses five spirituals. And uh, as you noted, it's split into three parts. And the first part really is just setting the background. The second part is more storytelling. And then, of course, the ending is a little bit of uh, moralizing and um, um, uh, wraps everything up together. Um, but the interesting thing about this work is that we actually didn't program this um, uh, in response to some of the day's events. This was actually something that was left over from uh, pre-pandemic programming that it got delayed until now. But every single time I read a review of this work going back to its premiere, the reviewers say the same thing, which is that this is a very timely piece at a very important moment in history. And the fact that this piece being prepared, uh, being performed now has such direct connections to our, our you know, the, the worldwide events happening right now is very, uh, not only was obviously uh, important, but it is also very uh, um, uh, it is a little bit, um, uh, it is a very powerful piece right now. Yeah. I, I always tend to be a bit cynical this time of year with all these, um, songs of peace on earth. There's never been peace on earth. Never has been, uh, you know, it would be, it would be nice. And I'm sure we learn a lot from this, sadly, uh, how history repeats itself in the, this work by Michael Tippett. Well, let's hear a brief part from the 
part one of Michael Tippett's A Child of Our Time, Is Evil Then Good? Again, in this first part uh, of several pieces, the general state of affairs in the world as it affects all individuals, minorities, classes, races, man at odds with his shadow, the darker side of personality. Here is Is Evil Then Good? from A Child of Our Time. Then, more with Mink Luke. Excerpt from part one of Michael Tippett's A Child of Our Times. Beautiful orchestral writing there. Is Evil Then Good? That was Sir Colin Davis conducting the London Symphony Orchestra in a live performance. Ming Luke leads the forces of the Berkeley Community Chorus and Orchestra for Voices on War. Friday, January 5th at 7.30, the 6th and 7th at 3 p.m. at Berkeley's Hertz Hall. That's some powerful stuff. And again, the writing is so profound. I mean, he's so... The, uh, being a flutist, I'm li- obviously a little biased. That's some beautiful flute writing. Yeah, he was deeply affected by the events, you know, and, and uh, he was a path- pacifist himself. He was arrested for, uh, you know, um, uh, his views. And this work had great meaning. Um, as you mentioned, uh, he wrote the um, libretto himself. Um, and uh, it's a very powerful work. But I think, again, for, especially for Americans, you know, um, the spirituals really anchoring the work. You know, you hear very, very oftentimes direct and um, intense music. And then when the five spirituals, when they are sung interspersed throughout the entire work, they being surrounded by this intense music suddenly takes a lot more um, um, uh, uh, 
it's very, very emotional and a lot of deep meaning. The chorus actually spent quite a bit of time talking about um, the difficulties in singing the work, both in the emotional depth of the work, but also the words of hate, the words of aggression that the chorus as, you know, as a multi-role uh, is in all oratorios, you know, the chorus is sometimes a crowd, sometimes it's the angels, sometimes it's people. Um, but in this work, oftentimes they have to sing very aggressive, uh, hateful words and they had a long discussion on trying to figure out how to be able to sing a work of such intensity um, and explore some of these emotions. Um, but I think the spirituals really, um, really anchor it for us, especially, especially as Americans, since we know the spirituals so well. Uh, before we hear another excerpt from uh, the Tippet to go out with, uh, tell us about the newly commissioned work. Oh, the Sam Wu. This is also a work that was commissioned during pandemic and never had a chance to be uh, performed. And so this is a world premiere, um, but it was supposed to be premiered two years ago. Um, but it is a poem by Lee Poe that talks about the destruction of war. And it is about this soldier that's sitting at the furthest reaches of uh, his nation and looking at, at all the destruction and him being alone um, at this outpost. And, you know, the fact that, again, these two works uh, had such deep themes together at this time, which wasn't planned, at the, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, years ago when we actually uh, set up the concerts. Um, it is uh, two very, very powerful works um, where the uh, tippet is much more uh, full and and very in your face. The woo is incredibly atmospheric and thoughtful um, and transfers itself. I mean, like it transforms itself from this very uh, ethereal opening into a little bit more close up view of war and back to, again, a philosophical end. Um, it's an absolutely gorgeous work. Um, and then I should note that we added a third program, which is Suspiri by um, Elgar. And this is a work that he wrote in response to World War One. And so, again, the theme being the voices of artists during war um, and the commentary and the themes and emotions that br are brought up. It's a, it's a very, uh, uh, it seems like it's going to be a very powerful concert. Voices on War, the Berkeley Community Chorus and Orchestra, Friday the 5th through the 7th, information at bcco.org. Before I let you go, uh, Ming, and of course, with everything that's going on, we'll have you back soon. <laughs> Tell us about what we're going to hear to go out with, a spiritual of anger that incorporates one of those spirituals, Go Down Moses. Well, I think, you know, with spirituals, I think, you know, sometimes we listen to them and we, we sort of get enamored and swim in these beautiful sonorities and songs. But the deeper message is often coded with spirituals. And so in this, um, um, with this spiritual, of course, I go down Moses where they're talking about the enslavement, um, uh, during Egypt's time. Um, it had direct relationship, obviously, to the enslavement, uh, during the colonial times. And so it was often used as a message. You know, you couldn't tell off your captors, but you could tell a story about Moses and Egypt being, you know, trying to be freed. Hmm. And so, um, this, uh, uh, acknowledges it. You know, we don't say just a spiritual that's, you know, beautiful and, and et cetera. This is actually a spiritual spiritual of anger. This is a spiritual of resentment. This is a spiritual of like trying to, you know, advocate for oneself. And so that is, um, I think those, 
again, in the tippet, when you actually have all those themes and those aggression, um, and then you have the spirituals, it really deeps, uh, digs deeper into the true meanings of what the spirituals are supposed to be. And so um, it's, a, it's a beautiful work. That's wild. I never thought of that connection with Go Down Moses and the enslavement of in, in Egypt. That's, wild. That's fascinating to learn. Um, okay, so thank you very much, Ming, for taking some time. Here's more music of Michael Tippett, A Spiritual of Anger. Thanks, Ming. Thank you. Michael Tippett's A Child of Our Time, A Spiritual of Anger, incorporating Go Down Moses. That big work is part of Voices on War, the Berkeley Community Chorus and Orchestra's presentation, January 5th at 7.30, the 6th, and Sunday the 7th at 3. You see Berkeley's Hertzhall. These are free concerts, and you'd be well advised to try to catch them if you can. Still to come... Philippa Kelly talks with Stephanie Holmes, Director of Communications of the Magic Theater. Peter Robinson will review the latest episodes of The Crown. And next, well, another busy guy in the music biz is my friend, Brett Strader. Composer and conductor in high demand, his works have been broadcast on television in over 100 countries. Brett is also music director for the annual Sing for America fundraising choral concerts, and this past July was appointed resident music director of the Lamplighters Music Theater here in San Francisco. It's in his capacity as music director and conductor of Petaluma's Cinnabar Theater production of the last five years, the 2001 musical with music and lyrics by Jason Robert Brown, that we talk with him today. Brett, welcome back to On the Arts. Hi, David. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm also joined by the director of that show, Jared Sackerman. Welcome, Jared. Good to be here. Well, the story explores a five-year relationship between Jamie Wellerstein, a rising novelist, and Kathy Hyatt, a struggling actress. The show uses a creative form of storytelling in which Jamie's story is told in chronological order, starting just after the couple have first met, and Kathy's story is told in reverse chronological order, beginning the show at the end of their marriage. The characters don't even interact directly except for a wedding song, very very uh, cleverly put in the middle as their timelines intersect. Jared, this show with the, a reverse timeline reminds me, I guess, it's a, it's a nod to Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along, which also deals with collapsed relationships in a present-to-past timeline. Yes, uh, to, be, to be honest about this production, they do interact, uh, and we're taking maybe more liberties with some of that, uh, they they do exist in each other's world throughout the time periods, but from their own particular perspective and often on the periphery. Um, but it's certainly uh, not not a, a 
an unknown device in the theater. You know, um, Harold Pinter used it in a, a play called Betrayal, in which he reversed the timeline uh, to, to contrast people's behavior later in a relationship with that in the beginning. And uh, it's used very effectively, I think, in this in this musical, which uh, is only 90 minutes nonstop. Uh, but um, it, it's very clever, very cleverly written. Well, this is known as what's in, known in the biz as a two-hander. Well, in fact, four-hands yes. are involved. A significantly smaller cast than Merrily We Roll Along with just two people, and they each do have two hands to carry the show. Tell us about your uh, your cast of two, Zanna Wyant as Kathy and Zachary Hasmany as uh, Jamie. Uh, we're very lucky, very lucky. This musical requires not only really great acting, great singing, and uh, and just great presence on stage, charis- charismatic presence. And um, I know um, Brett will want to talk about their voices, but you, you can't pull this show off without really good uh, trained singers. Uh, and at the same time, because it's not a pretty musical with a kind of a fluffy um, uh, storyline. It requires acting. Uh, and so, yeah, they have to kind of roll up their sleeves and, and, uh, and, and dig deep into their own acting resources to pull off this story. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy. Uh, Zanna Wyatt plays Kathy Hyatt. Uh, the female and uh, Zachary Hasbany plays Jamie, the uh, up and coming uh, writer. Um, and, um, and, and and then there you go. And uh, it's at Petaluma um, at the uh, Cinnabar Theater. If you haven't been to the Cinnabar Theater, you ought to come up. It's a lovely little theater. And there are great restaurants in Petaluma. So come up and have a great meal, see a 90 minute wonderful musical was uh, performed by two wonderful performers sold i'm going to actually be up in sonoma that weekend so i'll talk to you about that <laughs> that's jared sacker the director of the cinnabar theaters the last five years running january 5th through the 21st cinnabar theater that's theater with an er this time dot org for more information Brett Strader, the music director, also with me. Brett, you've got quite a smorgasbord of musical styles, uh, a number of musical genres, pop, jazz, classical, klezmer, Latin, blues, rock, and folk. Thankfully, they have, they're in great hands because I know you're, you're quite adept at most of those. Yeah, it's, it's quite a score. Um, uh, and I've, I've, I've known this musical since it came out about 20 years ago. And I think this is probably my fourth or fifth uh, production uh, playing this. And uh, it doesn't get any easier over the years. In fact, uh, when I started woodshedding this uh, a couple of months ago, I was uh, I was uh, rudely awoken by my age. <laughs> it doesn't come back <laughs> in, under the fingers as quickly as it used to. It took a little bit more more effort. But yeah, it's it's a wonderful orchestration. It's um, it's uniquely orchestrated for. I mean, it's, it's a very rhythmic show. I mean, it's every song has sort of. Um, a groove based song. That's the way Jason Robert Brown plays the piano. And he, you know, uh, flummoxes most musical directors and pianists because he writes out every single one of his piano licks. And I remember reading an interview with him where he said, uh, you know, the poor pianists that have to take on my shows are stuck playing 
things that I've been playing for a hundred years in piano bars and, <laughs> and have to play them the same way I do, whereas each pianist might have a different, different set of licks, but um, it's, it's quite fun, but there's no drums, uh, interestingly, in his orchestration. If you watch the, uh, the movie that came out a number of years ago, they added drums and all my drummer friends say, yeah, they fixed the, the glaring error in this show, <laughs> but we, we don't have a drummer and it's violin, cello, uh, electric guitar, electric bass, and piano. It's a great uh, small small band, and uh, we can cover all the bases pretty well. Well, let's give a taste for our listeners of the style of music, well, at least one of the styles of music that they'll hear. Tell us a little bit about uh, the style of a part of that. Yeah, it's um, it's a well. Every song in the show is is a, a great acting moment or, or a collection of great acting moments. Uh, the actors, like Jed said, have to be on all the time while they're singing. I'm a part of that. Is is kind of a bouncy, um, you know, it's a bouncy pop song, and I think it represents where Kathy is uh, at that point in the story. She's she's fallen in love with Jamie, and she's thrilled to be sort of riding on his coattails as a as a up and coming you know superstar in the writing world uh, and she's just uh, explaining how how different this is than uh, what she had to deal with before from the last five years a part of that and then more with brett strader and jed Just a typical life And then he's off on a trip to Jamie Land Staring catatonic out the window On that note, that's uh, Sherry Renee Scott singing a part of that from the last five years. Zanna Wyatt will be playing the role of Kathy in the Cinnabar Theater production with Jamie played by Zachary Hasbany. Brett Strader, the music director and uh, conductor for the evening, and Jared Sacron, director of the show, my guests on the arts. Yeah, a lot of fun fun stuff going on there so it's uh as, as much as the storyline is is a part of everyone's may be a part of everyone's life and experience it's uh it should be an enjoyable 90 minutes thank you david for having us on sure jared and uh um before you go uh brett just sh- uh, tell us a little about what to expect with uh lamplighters coming up oh yeah well uh lamplighters has a couple of really exciting things going on the the most uh exciting coming up uh immediately is in february we are opening a new production of Ruddy Gore. And uh, it is set uh, for the first time in uh, 
18th century or 19th century Mexico. And we're doing this with a sort of a day of day of the dead, Dia de los Muertos, um, and a telenovela aesthetic. Um, and so that's, uh, really exciting. And what's, what's also cool about this is this is the first time, uh, in Lampatter's history that we're going to be doing our super titles in, uh, in by, you know, both English and in Spanish. Uh, we are doing this for accessibility reasons and also so we can expand our audience. And we're really, really excited about that. We just had a fundraiser to help us uh, raise some money to to make that happen. And uh, it's going to be great. Well, we'll have you on again to talk about that and perhaps the May production of The Mystery of Edwin Drew. That should be exciting. Yeah. Hey, Jared, where do you park your director's chair and megaphone next? Um, I don't have anything specific lined up other than a few... Um, potential uh, gigs that I'm waiting to hear on. That's always and, good. You got you yeah. know, that's what uh, the the life is like. That's for sure. Yeah. Having directed a, a veteran director of 22 musicals, you'll rack this one up. Another one with a, a notch on your. Yeah, I, I had spent the last eight years as artistic director at Sixth Street Playhouse, and it was pretty much nonstop there. So I'm enjoying a little bit of a slowdown, which has been very welcome. Good. Brett, Jared, thanks for taking some time today. We're going to hear just a little bit more from the last five years, the Shmuel song. Tell us uh, in a snapshot what that's about. Oh, well, this is uh, Jamie, who's uh, basically uh, making it possible for Kathy to pursue her career. He's giving her her time off. She doesn't have to be a waitress at a bar anymore. But he, as a as a lifelong storyteller, does this in a very creative way. And he sets the story um the story of Shmuel and tells her to go out and be happy and be successful at her career. Little Christmas story. I call it the story of Shmuel, Taylor of Klimovich. Shmuel would work till half past ten at his tailor shop in Klimovich. Get up at dawn and start again with the hems and pins and a twist. Forty-one years had come and gone at his tailor shop in Klimovich. Watching the winter soldier on, there was one thing Shmuel missed. If I only had time, old Shmuel said, I would build a dress that's in my head, a dress to fire the mad desire of girls from here to Minsk. But I have no more hours left to sew than the clock upon the wall began to glow. The clock said, na, 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 oh, Shmuel, you'll get to be happy. Na, 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 I give you unlimited time. Na, na, the Shmuel song, an interesting conversation with the clock and a tailor, part of a storytelling moment in the last five years. It's at the Cinnabar Theater, the 5th through the 21st of January. Cinnabartheater.org for more information. Coming up, we'll get a Brit's view of the latest offerings from The Crown from Peter Robinson. And next, I'm pleased to welcome back Philippa Kelly, who talks with Stephanie Holmes, Director of Communications of the Magic Theatre, to let us know what's going on there. Welcome. Thank you, David. And it's a thrill to have Stephanie Holmes with us today. And 
Uh, just want to say that um, with the beginnings of the magic in 1967, this theatre has continued to just amaze and to really enthrall its audiences. Sam Shepard became playwright in residence in 1974, writing the Pulitzer Prize winning Buried Child there, and he was in residence for 10 years. So the magic has always been a place for pure and beautiful theatre making. I went out there with Paul Drescher to see Oedipus El Rey in 2010, starring Sean San Jose, and that performance left Paul and me speechless. And it was a thrill to see it was the very same Sean who played Oedipus, appointed as artistic director two and a half years ago, uplifting the theatre really in the midst of the pandemic when theatre was suffering so much and people were sticking to Zoom. And Sean was out there saying, I want to make the theatre a place where people can safely come in person to do what theatre asks and beckons us to do, to be together watching people on stage in front of us telling stories and laying out before us the paradoxes and complexities of our humanness. So, Stephanie, thinking of this, and welcome, by the way, before we get into the programming for 2024, what would you say is the special quality of theatre, not on Zoom, but in person? Well, um, Philippa, thank you so much for having me, and it's always lovely to chat with you. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that those dark times, and for me, one of the most difficult things about Zoom is how quiet it is and how people are muted and they're waiting. And you see sort of animated faces every now and then, but there isn't that ability to connect and share energy, which, um, as you quoted from Sean, was a vital part of what we were hungry to get back to, um, sitting in a dark room with uh, many strangers or, or loved ones or friends or whomever and witnessing the unfolding of a story live as it happens. And it's different every time, as everyone knows in the theatre. It's a different show every time because all the people in the audience and then the people who are on the stage going through things, picking up on things, um, just, you know, this silent communication um, is, I think, something that we were all so desperate for and it was vital that we um, got open as soon as possible so that we could share that again with people, for the performers, for the crew, for the creatives, for the front of house, for the audiences, for everybody to, to gather live in person yeah and it's it's a beautiful little theater so um to go to the magic's programming for 2024 can you give us a, a little snapshot of what'll be on stage this coming year absolutely so we uh pride ourselves as as magic has always been uh regaled for our world premieres or original pieces original works um and so this year, it's really exciting. In 2024, we have Ashley Smiley, who's a, an incredible local playwright um, who brings us dirty white Teslas, make us sad, make me sad. Um, and that's our um, 
opening show of 2024. Um, and then we are doing something a little different this year. We're collaborating with Play on Shakespeare, which I know you're extremely familiar with and have been part of this sort of ride and process. Um, so we're doing the Naomi Azuka repertory. Um, and so we're doing, um, Magic Theater is doing uh, a translation by Naomi of Richard II. Um, and those same actors, it, um, actually, it's the wrong way around. We're doing a world premiere play by Naomi Azuka called Garuda's Wing. And um, the repertory of actors will then also um, do um, her translation of Richard II. Um, so that's a new and exciting experience for us as well. Um, and then we have a collaboration with the Presidio Theatre. Um, and we're doing a brand new play by Richard Montoya um, of Culture Clash fame um, called Jerry Garcia in the Lower Mission, which is another very different thing for us to do because it's got a live band and it's a musical and it's just this incredible uh, story about Jerry Garcia's childhood and, and life here and, and um, what, who he grew into. So it's exciting. And so those are just the magic productions. Um, but we also uh, have resident uh, theater companies like the Lorraine Hansberry Theater. Um, and we have uh, another collaborative relationship with Crowded Fire Theater. So the space is always full and always things happening. We've got one-off weekend events and workshops and talkbacks. And, and um, you know, those of you that have come to the magic, we really love to entertain, not only on the stage, but in our shared lobby space. And um, so, you know, we try to make it as uh, community focused and, and as diverse and as open and accepting and welcoming as we possibly can. Gosh, I, I love that thought. And it's it's interesting just thinking about Richard II that Naomi Izuka translation, I've read so many of the play on ones. That is just, I think it's one of the most beautiful. It's, um, mm. it, it's just seamless. And I, I know we've got my dear friend Peter Robinson coming on to tell us all about the crown in a moment, but I do want to say before we wrap up, Stephanie, could you tell our audience what is involved with being a communications, uh, director at a theatre and how you came to this? So um, I also run a children's theatre, which is located at Fort Mason Centre. And um, I saw that the magic had been looking for front of house people. And I thought that would be really fun because the children's theatre, young performance theatre, it was just sort of me and, and children whom I adore and they're my family. But I also would have loved to, you know, I wanted the opportunity to share space and theater and, and on, on a, on a more, um, adult and, uh, you know, older level. Um, so I applied for this job and, and, um, started off as the front of house manager and then moved on to patron services manager. And then with, um, Sean's, uh, uh, taking the helm, um, became the communications director. And so, I always just describe it as I'm just very chatty. So I just talk to people and try to welcome them and make them feel uh, comfy and at home and um, to make, you know, one of the vital things about 
Um, the magic is that we want it to be accessible to everybody. And so we have um, a dynamic pricing um, for all our tickets. Um, so the cheapest ticket is $30 and the, the true value of the ticket would be 75. And so we have this sort of scale and then not assigned seats. People can sit wherever they like. If they get a $30 ticket, they can still sit, sit front row center. Um, and one of the things that we have to make it um, accessible is a performance pass, which has uh, tickets, priority tickets, because right now no single tickets are available to any of our shows. And for people that were part of the 2023 programming year, um, our shows sold out. And there were lots of people that, even though we extended uh, and we squeezed as many people in as we could, unfortunately missed things. So the performance passes guarantee you um, seats to the shows. They give you discounts to all the um, events. You get priority um, invitations to workshops and talkbacks and, and other special events um, and discounts to um, the other companies that we collaborate with. Learn more um, at, I'm, and, I'm sorry, Stephanie, we're going to have to leave yes, it absolutely. there. Um, learn That's more fine. at magictheater.org. That's a theater with an R-E, theater.org. It was cinnabartheater.org. Or with an ER, but this is um, Magic Theater with an RE. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Stephanie. And as always, Philippa, uh, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so and very much. Thank I you so chassis. much, Stephanie. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> now we're going to find out exactly what we're supposed to think about the crown. Well, who better than a Brit to explain what's going on with the latest season of the crown? Here is Peter Robinson. Uh, David, am I coming in? Good. Greetings, and we have, with a roll on the drums, got one minor echo, God Save the King. Now, we've gone through many periods of time where we've sung God Save the Queen, but now we're back into the realm where the prince has become a king. And putting an end to a series which actually is, takes us back to the beginning of the century is the final two, three, four episodes of The Crown. And what it raises in my mind is how do we interpret history? In the old days, they used to say journalists wrote the first draft of history. If that's the case, I want to say that docudramatists write the second draft. So we're dealing with a soap opera, a soap opera, a great family, a family that has been constantly in the news, sometimes referred to as the firm, F-I-R-M. But essentially, it's somewhere between speculation, psychology, facts, and then a word which, thanks to Norman Mailer, is really important nowadays, factoids. I, I don't actually like the word factoid myself, but when we're dealing with the crown, we deal with many versions of the factoid. So let me kick off by dealing with Princess Diana. These last two series deal with the tragic death as the car drives into the tunnel and then she's gone. And a lot of the critics have picked up on her return as a ghost. I'm going to say straight away that I'm not worried about the ghost sequence. If I go back to great historic plays such as Hamlet, walking the towers of the castle, is Hamlet's father warning him about what lies ahead. If we go to Macbeth, uh, the ghost after Banquo's death, 
reoccurs. So to me, ghost sequences in drama is something which very much makes the story of both the life and then the afterlife come to truth. And Diana seems a lot more sane in this series in the afterlife when she is in the depth of a cemetery, well, actually a body on a, on a gurney, and Prince uh, and now King talks to her. And I think what we're seeing is the voice of Charles speaking to himself about the woman that ultimately died in a tragic incident. Then later, we see the Queen also having a ghost appearance. Once again, Diane seems very, very sensible, giving more advice in the afterlife than she did in reality. I I go back to the initial script by Peter Morgan, and he's an old hand about covering the crown. This has been a 20-part series. I came out of it with a great deal of sympathy for uh, both William and Harry. I asked myself, what would it be like in real life see a depiction of a funeral service where I'm walking with the Duke of Edinburgh and having words put on the screen which may never have been uttered. But if I look at the whole sequence, uh, for example, the role of Diana played by Elizabeth Debicki, although she's a few inches taller than Diana, she has the face movements, she has the gestures, and she has the character of Diana. So I think this is a good time to end The Crown. There are certain suggestions there which we know is purely speculation. For example, did Kate Middleton's mother really push her into the romance with Prince William? That to me is a question which only mind readers can come up with the answer. So we're dealing with history. We're dealing with, as the documentary begins, based, and the word is loosely on fact, Uh, But in reality, it is a television soap drama about people that we know are still alive today in many instances and people whose own stories have remained a royal secret. You know, there are a couple of interesting inaccuracies. Uh, One, for example, uh, the father of Dodi, Ali Fayyad, he supposedly called the Italian paparazzi the character with the long lens on his camera, to take the photographs of Diana and Dodie together. Uh, Tina Brown, in her autobiography, suggests, in fact, it was Diana who called the photographer. Now, does this matter when you're watching television? Probably the answer is no. Uh, Does it matter if you pay attention to history? And I keep on harking back, because early on, Philippa, talking about Richard II, and I think of some of the great kings in history, but one line keeps on coming, coming, coming back to me, and that is, uneasy, rest the head that wears the crown. And I think the responsibility that King Charles has, particularly when we talk about heads, because incidentally, Charles I lost his head. So let's put that into a context. So we have a a king, he is depicted in the series as a prince, and one of the key scenes is what I call a lord-in-waiting or a king-in-waiting. And in one of the sequences, the queen has a kind of premonition of 
what her death may mean. There was a scene at the coffin, there's a scene at the Duke talking to her, there's a scene as to whether she should abdicate. And we all know in the 20th century what abdication meant, particularly in 1936. So we have a series here which I think is good acting, it's good television, it's good drama, and let's give it credit for all those things. But my question is, is it good history? And from a historian's point of view, I have to smile. I have to smile at the auto-suggestion and the fact that a good scriptwriter, and Peter Morgan is a good scriptwriter, definitely raises questions. So let's finish at least with one funny line in the whole story. Princess Diana has died. She's in Paris. The king is in Buckingham Palace, and he wants the body to be flown back in a royal aeroplane. The Duke, of course, is standing back and hesitates. And Prince Charles delivers to me what is the most magnificent line in the whole series. Would you like her to come back in a Harrods van? And I have to laugh about that because (laughs) Faid owned Harrods. He never got his British citizenship and that would have been the icing on the cake. (laughs) Anyhow, a last hurrah. Thanks for the drama. Thanks for a moment in history, but let's not count the other moments where things may never have happened the way our scriptwriter, Peter Morgan, decided to put them in the stories. Once again, God save the Queen! God save the King now, because we now have Charles III. A little bit of... Martin Phipps soundtrack from The Crown in the background there. Thank you so much, Peter Robinson, for your perspective on that. And happy third day of Christmas. And a happy new year to you, David. It's just around the corner. It is indeed. Thanks, Peter. Well, among the honorees uh, earlier this month of the Kennedy Honors was... British singer, songwriter, producer, and member of the Bee Gees, Barry Gibb, rapper, singer, and actress Queen Latifah, and Dionne Warwick, as well as the actor and comedian Billy Crystal, and also acclaimed soprano Renee Fleming. So on this second, third day of Christmas, let's hear from her Christmas album a song that Karen Carpenter wrote with her brother Richard and Merry Christmas, Darling. Here's Renee Fleming and Chris Body.
Christmas A Happy New Year to For your third day of Christmas, the great Kennedy Center honoree, Renee Fleming, singing the Carpenter tune, Merry Christmas, darling. Congratulations, Renee Fleming, on this third day of Christmas. Well, next week on the arts, it's the 10th day of Christmas. And in a nod to the Christmas story in anticipation of the arrival of the three wise men to the manger in Bethlehem and what's known as Epiphany in the Christian calendar, the 12th day of Christmas, We'll offer a recording of Giancarlo Minotti's Amal and the Night Visitors, an opera in one act by Minotti with an original English libretto by the composer. It was commissioned by the NBC and first performed by the NBC Opera Theater on December 24, 1951, in New York City at NBC's storied Studio 8H in Rockefeller Center, now the longtime home of Saturday Night Live where it was broadcast live on television from that venue as the debut production of the Hallmark Hall of Fame. It was the first opera specifically composed for television in the United States, so no guests next week, next week but some great music of Giancarlo Manate. Hope you'll join us on that 10th day of Christmas. You've been listening to On the Arts here on KALW. Our theme has been inspired, was inspired by music by Paul Drescher. Our shows are archived at KALW.org. And you can always send me a note, maybe a birthday wish. I was born on the 12th day of Christmas. I'm David at KALW.org. Thanks for listening, and Happy New Year to all.